1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod
2: to 500-500. Facial recognition is a critical tool for law enforcement. The FBI used it to identify suspects from the Capitol on January 6th. and State and local police say it's instrumental in cracking some of their toughest cases. Facial recognition technology uses complex algorithms to identify suspects by searching them against a database of photos. But it's not just mugshots. If you have a driver's license, there's a good chance your picture may have been searched too. We're
0: all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, that
3: thing, dude. To the Pentagon, these are known as unidentified aerial phenomena. But what they are and where they come from is about to become part of an official government report. What do you think when you see something like this?
4: This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know, I don't know what it is, frankly.
5: <laughs> you are not laid back when you play tennis. No,
6: no.
7: I think I'm a, a very person intense with person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at and maximum intensity. intensity. Tonight, we will try to explain
5: how Rafa Nadal, the most intense tennis player of his generation, can come from a place like this, the sleepy, sunny island of Majorca. Have you jumped
0: off that? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times, yes. Oh, man. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes.
8: removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell.
2: In the past few years, facial recognition technology has become a critical tool for law enforcement. The FBI has used it to help identify suspects who stormed the Capitol on January 6. And state and local police say it's been instrumental in cases of robberies, assaults, and murders. Facial recognition software uses complex mathematical algorithms or instructions to compare a picture of a suspect's face to potentially millions of others in a database. But it's not just mugshots the software may be searching through. If you have a driver's license, there's a good chance your picture might have been searched even if you've never committed a crime in your life. In January 2020, Robert Williams arrived home from work to find two Detroit police officers waiting for him outside his house in the quiet suburb of Farmington Hills, Michigan.
9: you are under arrest for your warrant, for your outstanding Can I see the warrant? warrant.
2: They had a warrant for his arrest. Hold on, oh, sir. Hold on a second. On. He'd sir. Never been in trouble with the law before and had no idea what he was being accused of.
5: I'm like you can't just show up to my house and tell me I'm under arrest.
1: Can
10: I see what we looking at?
1: The, the cop gets a piece of paper and it says,
5: There you go. larceny on it. I'm like, bro, I didn't steal nothing. I'm like, y'all got the wrong
2: person. Williams, who's 43 and now recovering from a stroke, was handcuffed in front of his wife, Melissa, and their two daughters.
7: We thought it was maybe a mistaken identity. Like, did someone use his name?
2: He was brought to this detention center and locked in a cell overnight. Police believed Williams was this man in the red hat, recorded in a Detroit store in 2018, stealing $3,800 worth of watches. When Detroit detectives finally questioned Williams more than 12 hours after his arrest, they showed him some photos, including from the store security camera. So
10: he turns over the paper and he's like, so that's not you? And
5: I looked at it, picked it up and held it up to my face and I said... I hope y'all don't think all black people look alike. At this point, I'm upset. Like, bro, why am I
2: even here? He's like, so I guess the computer got it wrong. The police officer said the computer got it wrong. Yeah, the computer got it wrong. Williams didn't know the computer they were referring to was a facial recognition program. Detroit police showed us how their system works. First, a photo of an unknown suspect is run against a database of hundreds of thousands of mugshots, which we blurred for this demonstration. It's an electronic mug book, if you will. James Craig has been Detroit's chief of police since 2013.
9: Once we insert a photograph, a probe photo, uh, into the software, the computer may generate 100 probables. And then they rank these photographs in order of what the computer suggests or the software suggests is the most likely suspect.
2: The software ranks it in order... Of, of most likely suspect to listen. Absolutely. Life. It's then up to an analyst to compare each of those possible matches to the suspect and decide whether any of them should be investigated further. In the Robert Williams case, Detroit police say they didn't have an analyst on duty that day. So they asked Michigan State Police to run this photo through their system, which had a database of nearly 50 million faces taken from mugshots, but also state IDs and driver's licenses. This old driver's license photo of Robert Williams popped up. We learned it was ranked ninth among 243 possible matches. An analyst then sent it to Detroit police as an investigative lead only, not probable cause to arrest. What happened in the case of Robert Williams? What went wrong?
9: Sloppy, sloppy investigative work.
2: Sloppy, Chief Craig says, because the detective in Detroit did little other investigative work before getting a warrant to arrest Williams.
9: The response uh, by this administration, that detective was disciplined, and subsequently a commanding officer of that command has been de-appointed. But it wasn't facial recognition that failed. What failed was a horrible investigation. Pizza,
2: yummy. Two weeks after he was arrested, the charges against Robert Williams were dismissed. The police in Detroit say that the Williams case was in large part a result of sloppy detective work. Do you think that's true?
11: That's part of the story, for sure. But face recognition is also part of the story.
2: Claire Garvey, a lawyer at Georgetown's Center on Privacy and Technology, estimates facial recognition has been involved in hundreds of thousands of cases.
11: Face recognition, She's been
2: tracking its use by police for years. Legislators, law enforcement, and software developers have all sought out Garvey's input on the topic.
11: Because it's a machine, because it's math that does the face recognition match in these systems... We're giving it too much credence. We're saying it's math, therefore it must be right.
2: The computer must be right.
11: Exactly. When we want to agree with the computer, we're going to go find evidence that agrees with it.
2: But Garvey says the computer is only as good as the software it runs on.
11: There are some good algorithms, there are some terrible algorithms, and everything in between.
2: Patrick Grother has examined most of them. He's a computer scientist at a little known government agency called the National Institute of Standards and Technology.
4: Different races, different sex.
2: Every year, more than 100 facial recognition developers around the world send his lab prototypes to test for accuracy. Are computers good at recognizing faces? They're very good. I, they're, they're
4: better than humans today.
2: Are these algorithms flawless? By no means. Software developers train facial recognition algorithms by showing them huge numbers of human faces so they can learn how to spot similarities and differences. But they don't work the way you might expect. We've all seen in movies computers that form a map of the face. Is that what's happening with facial recognition? I mean, historically, yes. But nowadays, that is not the, the approach. So it's not taking your nose and comparing it to noses in its database, or and then taking eyes and comparing it to eyes?
5: Nothing so explicit. It could be looking at eyebrows or eyes or nose or lips. It could be looking at uh, skin texture. So if we have 20 photos of Anderson Cooper. What is consistent? It's trying to uncover what what makes Anderson Cooper Anderson Cooper.
2: A year and a half ago, Grother and his team published a landmark study, which found that many facial recognition algorithms had a harder time making out differences in black, Asian, and female faces.
4: They make mistakes, false negative errors where they don't find the correct face, and false positive errors where they find somebody else. In a criminal justice context, it could lead to a, you know, an incorrect arrest.
2: Why would race or gender of a person lead to misidentification?
0: The algorithm has been built on a finite number of photos that may or may not be demographically balanced. Might not have enough
2: females, enough Asian people, enough black people among the photos that it's using to teach the algorithm.
0: Yeah, to to teach the algorithm how to
2: uh, do identity. Claire Garvey points out the potential for mistakes makes it all the more important how police use the information generated by the software. Is facial recognition being misused by police?
11: In the absence of rules, what's misuse? There are very few rules in most places around how the technology is used.
2: It turns out there aren't well-established national guidelines, and it's up to states, cities, and local law enforcement agencies to decide how they use the technology. Who can run facial recognition searches? What kind of formal training, if any, is needed? And what kind of images can be used in a search? In a 2019 report, Garvey found surprising practices at some police departments, including the editing of suspects' facial features before running the photos in a search.
11: Most photos that police are are dealing with, understandably, are partially obscured. Police departments say, no worries, just cut and paste someone else's features, someone else's chin and mouth into that photo before submitting it. But
2: that's like half of somebody's face.
11: I agree. If we think about this, face recognition is considered a biometric, like fingerprinting. It's unique to the individual. So how can you swap out people's eyes and expect to still get a good result?
2: What we call a pro-photo... Detroit's police chief James Craig says they don't allow that kind of editing with their facial recognition system, which cost an estimated $1.8 million and has been in use since 2017. He says it's become a crucial tool in combating one of the highest violent crime rates in the country and was used in 117 investigations last year alone.
9: We understand that the the software is not perfect. We know that.
2: It's got to be tempting for some officers to use it as more than just a lead.
9: Well, as I like to always say to my staff, the end never justifies the means.
2: i see you later. After Robert Williams, another alleged wrongful arrest by Detroit police came to light. Chief Craig says they put in place stricter policies limiting the use of facial recognition to violent crime.
9: Let your code of ethics and integrity guide you.
2: And requiring police to disclose its use to, to prosecutors, prosecutors when seeking a warrant and adding new layers of
9: oversight. So analyst number one will go through the methodical work of trying to identify the suspect. A second analyst has to go through the same level of rigor. The last step is if the supervisor concurs, now that person can be used as a lead, a lead only. A suspect cannot be arrested alone and charged alone based on the recognition.
2: But there are police departments like this one in Woodbridge, New Jersey, where it's unclear what rules are in place. In February 2019, police in Woodbridge arrested 33-year-old Najir Parks. Did they tell you why they thought it was you?
6: Pretty much just facial recognition.
2: When I asked him, like, well, how did you come to get me? Like, like the computer brought you up. The computer's not just going to lie. Police said a suspect allegedly shoplifted from this Hampton Inn and nearly hit an officer with a car while escaping the scene. They ran this driver's license the suspect gave them through a facial recognition program. It's not clear if this is the perpetrator since law enforcement said it's a fake ID. According to police reports, the search returned, quote, a high-profile comparison to Najir Parks. He spent more than a week in jail before he was released to fight his case in court. I think they looked at my background, they pretty much figured, like, he had a jacket, we got him, He ain't. he's not going to fight it. He don't. When you said he, he had a jacket, you, you had prior convictions? Yes. What prior
6: convictions did you have? Um, I've been convicted for selling drugs. I've been in prison twice for it. But I've been
2: home since 2016. I had a job, nuns that whole time. Facing 20 years in jail, Park says he considered taking a plea deal. I knew I didn't do it, but it's like, I got a chance to be at home, spending more time with my son, or I got a chance to come home and he's a grown man and might have his own son. Because I think most people think, well, if I didn't commit a crime, there's no way I would accept a plea deal. You would say that until you're sitting right there. After eight months, prosecutors failed to produce any evidence in court linking Park's to the crime. And in October 2019, the case was dismissed. Parks is now the third black man since last summer to come forward and sue for wrongful arrest involving facial recognition. Woodbridge police and the prosecutor involved in Parks' case declined to speak with us. A spokesman for the town told us that they denied Parks' civil claims in court filings. If this has been used hundreds of thousands of times as leads in investigations, and you can only point to three arrests based on a misidentification by this technology... In the balance, is that so bad?
11: The fact that we only know of three misidentifications is more a product of how little we know about the technology than how accurate it is.
2: Do you think there are more?
11: Yes, I have every reason to believe there are more. And this is why. The person who's accused almost never finds out that it was used. One.
2: Robert Williams says he only found out it was used after detectives told him the computer got it wrong. He sued with the help of the ACLU. The city of Detroit has denied any legal responsibility and told us they hope to settle. While the use of facial recognition technology by police departments continues to grow, so do calls for greater oversight. Within the last two years, one city and one state have put a moratorium on the technology, and 19 cities have banned it
8: outright. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby.
3: We have tackled many strange stories on 60 Minutes, but perhaps none like this. It's the story of the U.S. government's grudging acknowledgement of Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, more commonly known as UFOs. After decades of public denial, the Pentagon now admits there's something out there, and the U.S. Senate wants to know what it is. The Intelligence Committee has ordered the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to deliver a report on the mysterious sightings by next month. So what you're telling me is that UFOs, unidentified flying objects, are real.
12: Bill, I think we're beyond that already. The government has
3: already stated for the record that they're real. I'm not telling you that. The United States government is telling you that. Luis Elizondo spent 20 years running military intelligence operations worldwide in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Guantanamo. He hadn't given UFOs a second thought until 2008. That's when he was asked to join something at the Pentagon called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. The mission of ATIP was quite simple. It was to collect
12: and analyze information involving anomalous uh, aerial vehicles. Uh, what, I guess in the vernacular, you, you call them UFOs. We call them UAPs.
3: You know how this sounds. It sounds nutty, wacky. Yeah, look,
12: Bill, I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that, that it doesn't sound wacky. What I'm telling you is real. The question is, what is it?
3: What are its intentions? What are its capabilities? Buried away in the Pentagon... Atip was part of a $22 million program sponsored by then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to investigate UFOs. When Elizondo took over in 2010, he focused on the national security implications of unidentified aerial phenomena documented by U.S. service members. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces,
12: that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that uh, it can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space. And, oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsions, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing.
3: Elizondo tells us ATIP was a loose-knit mix of scientists, electro-optical engineers, avionics and intelligence experts, often working part-time. They combed through data, and records, and analyzed videos like this. A Navy aircrew struggles to lock onto a fast-moving object off the U.S. Atlantic coast in 2015. Recently released images may not convince UFO skeptics, but the Pentagon admits it doesn't know what in the world this is, or this. Or this So what do you say to the skeptics It's refracted light, uh, weather balloons, a rocket being launched, v- Venus. in some cases, there are,
12: are simple explanations for what people are witnessing, but there are some that that are not We're not just simply jumping to a conclusion that's saying, oh, that's a UAP out there." We're going through our due diligence. Is it some sort of new type of cruise missile technology that China has developed? Is it some sort of high-altitude balloon that's conducting reconnaissance? Ultimately, when you have exhausted all those what-ifs and you're still left with, with the fact that this is in our airspace and it's real, that's
3: when it becomes compelling and that's when it becomes problematic. Former Navy pilot Lieutenant Ryan Graves calls whatever is out there a security risk. He told us his F-18 squadron began seeing UAPs hovering over restricted airspace southeast of Virginia Beach in 2014 when they updated their jet's radar, making it possible to zero in with infrared targeting cameras. So you're seeing it both with the radar and with the infrared, and that tells you that there is something out there.
4: Pretty hard to spoof that.
3: These photographs were taken in 2019 in the same area, The Pentagon confirms these are images of objects it can't identify. Lieutenant Graves told us pilots training off the Atlantic coast see things like that all the time.
4: Every day. Every day for at least a couple of years. Um, Wait a minute. Every day for a couple of years? mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't see an exhaust plume.
3: Including this one. Off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, in 2015, captured on a targeting camera by members of Graves Squadron.
0: thing. It's rotating. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 the
4: west. You can sort of hear the surprise in their voices. You certainly can. They seem to have broke character a bit. Uh, and we're just kind of amazed at what they were seeing.
3: What do you think when you see something like this?
4: This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know. I don't know what it is, frankly.
3: He told us pilots speculate they are one of three things. Secret U.S. technology, an adversary spy vehicle, or something otherworldly.
4: I would say, you know, the highest probability is it's a threat observation program.
3: Could it be Russian or Chinese technology?
4: I don't see why not.
3: Are you alarmed?
4: I I am worried, uh, frankly. You know, if these were tactical jets from another country that were hanging out up there, it would be a massive issue. But because it looks slightly different, we're not willing to actually look at the problem in the face. Uh, we're, We're happy to just ignore the fact that these are out there watching us every day.
3: The government has ignored it, at least publicly, since closing its Project Blue Book investigation in 1969, But that began to change after an incident off Southern California in 2004, which was documented by radar, by camera, and four naval aviators. We spoke to two of them, David Fravor, a graduate of the Top Gun Naval Flight School and commander of the F-18 squadron on the USS Nimitz, and flying at his wing, Lieutenant Alex Dietrich, who has never spoken publicly about the encounter.
12: I never wanted to be on national TV. (laughs) <laughs> no offense.
3: So why are you doing this?
12: Because I was in a government aircraft, because I was on the clock. And so I feel a responsibility to to share what I can, and it is unclassified.
3: It was November 2004, and the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was training about 100 miles southwest of San Diego. For a week, the advanced new radar on a nearby ship, the USS Princeton, had detected what operators called multiple anomalous aerial vehicles over the horizon, descending 80,000 feet in less than a second. On November 14th, Fravor and Dietrich, each with a weapons system officer in the back seat, were diverted to investigate. They found an area of roiling white water the size of a 737 in an otherwise calm blue sea. So as
10: we're looking at this, her backseater says, hey, Skipper, do you? And about that, got out. I said, dude, do you, do you see that thing down there? And we saw this little white, tic-tac-looking object, and it's just kind of moving above the whitewater area.
3: As Dietrich circled way. above, Fravor went in for a closer look. So it's sort of spiraling down? Yep.
10: The tic tac still pointing north-south. It goes, and just turns abruptly and starts mirroring me. So as I'm coming down, it starts coming up.
3: So it's, it's mimicking your moves. Yeah, it was aware we were there. He said it was about the size of his F-18, with no markings, no wings, no exhaust
10: plumes. I will see how close I can get. So I go like this, and it's climbing still. And when it gets right in front of me, it just disappears. Disappears? Disappears. Like,
3: gone. It had sped off. What are you thinking?
12: So your, your mind tries to make sense of it. I'm going to categorize this as maybe a helicopter or maybe a drone and when it disappeared i mean it was just
3: did your back seaters see this too
10: yeah oh yeah there was four of us in the airplanes literally watching
3: this thing for roughly about five minutes seconds later the princeton reacquired the target 60 miles away another crew managed to briefly lock onto it with a targeting camera before it zipped off again
12: you know i think that over beers we've sort of said hey man if i saw this a solo. I don't know that I would have come back and said anything because it sounds so crazy when I say it.
3: You understand
10: that reaction? I do. you have had some people tell me, you know, when you say that, you can sound crazy. and what? I'll be honest, I'm not a UFO guy.
3: But from what I hear you guys saying, there's something.
10: Yes. Oh, there's, there's definitely something that, I don't know who's building it, who's got the technology, who's got the brains, but there's,
3: there's something out there that was better in our airplane. The air crew filed reports. Then, like the mysterious flying object, the Nimitz encounter disappeared. Nothing was said or done officially for five years until Lou Elizondo came across the story and investigated. We spend millions of dollars in training these, these pilots, and they are
12: seeing something that they can't explain. Furthermore, that information's being backed up on
3: electro data, like gun camera footage, and by radar data. Now, to me, that's compelling. Inside the Pentagon, his findings were met with skepticism. ATIP's funding was eliminated in 2012, but Elizondo says he and a handful of others kept the mission alive. Until finally, frustrated, he quit the Pentagon in 2017. But not before getting these three videos declassified. And then things took a stranger turn.
13: I tried to help my colleague, Lou Elizondo, elevate the issue in the department and actually get it to the Secretary of Defense.
3: Christopher Mellon served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, and had access to top-secret government programs.
13: So it's not us. That's one thing we know. We know that. I could say that with a very high degree of confidence, in part because of the positions I held in the department, And I know the process.
3: Mellon says he grew concerned nothing was being done about UAPs, so he decided to do something. In 2017, as a private citizen, he surreptitiously acquired the three Navy videos Elizondo had declassified and leaked them to The New York Times.
13: It's bizarre and unfortunate that someone like myself has to do something like that to get a national security issue like this on the agenda.
3: He joined forces with now-civilian Lou Elizondo, and they started to tell their story to anybody who would listen, to newspapers, the History Channel, to members of Congress.
13: We knew and understood that you had to go to the public, get the public interested to get Congress interested, to then circle back to the Defense Department and get them to start taking a look at it.
3: And now it is. This past August, the Pentagon resurrected A-TIP. It's now called the UAP Task Force, Service members now are encouraged to report strange encounters, and the Senate wants answers.
9: Anything that enters an airspace that's not supposed to be there is a threat. After
3: receiving classified briefings on UAPs, Senator Marco Rubio called for a detailed analysis. This past December, while he was still head of the Intelligence Committee, he asked the Director of National Intelligence and the Pentagon to present Congress an unclassified report by next month. This is a bizarre issue. The Pentagon and other branches of the military have a long history of sort
9: of dismissing this. What makes you think that this time's gonna be different? I mean, we're gonna find out when we get that report. You know, there's a stigma on Capitol Hill. I mean, some of my colleagues are very interested in this topic and some kind of, you know, giggle when you, when you bring it up. But I I don't think we can allow the stigma to keep us from having an answer to a very fundamental question.
3: What do you want us to do about this?
9: I want us to take it seriously and have a process to take it seriously. I want us to have a process to analyze the data every time it comes in, that there be a place where this is cataloged and constantly analyzed until we get some answers. Maybe it has a very simple answer. Um, Maybe it doesn't.
5: When the French Open starts later this month in Paris, Rafael Nadal will defend his title. In other local news, the Eiffel Tower will attract tourists. Diners will order wine, and the Seine will be wet. Nadal first won the tennis tournament as a swashbuckling teenager. Now, the same week he turns 35, he will attempt to win the title for a record 14th time. If he succeeds, it will mark his 21st major victory passing Roger Federer on the men's all-time list and solidifying his case as the greatest male player ever to grip a racket. But as we first reported last year, Nadal doesn't play tennis so much as he works it, lacing the ball with somersaulting topspin and imposing his will on the opponent. This relentless approach, all toil and trouble, is strikingly effective and strikingly at odds with the vibe on the Spanish island where he was born lives now and vows never to leave. We found Rafa Nadal during his off-season, blasting away at practice every morning, deploying his lefty forehand and double-fisted backhand. Every bit is dialed in as he is during his matches. Such is his intensity, Nadal requires two sparring partners. His main coach, Carlos Moya, was once the world's number-one-ranked player himself. And even he struggled. That was easy, Nadal joked. See you. See you. Full disclosure, I've covered Nadal for 15 years on the pro tennis tour. But this was our first extended on-camera interview. He's fluent in English, but expresses himself more freely in Spanish.
7: You are not laid back when you play tennis. No, I think I'm a very intense person with a lot of energy. I live life and sports at maximum intensity. This is how I feel it. In 2019, the world felt it.
5: Perhaps the best six-month stretch of Nadal's career, even by his dizzyingly high standards. That June, he won the French Open. Of course he did. It was his 12th title on the red clay of Paris. More than any player in history has won any major. That September in New York, he reeled off the shot of the year. Watch this.
0: Come on. If I didn't see it with my
5: not over the net, but around it, and yes, this is legal, on his way to winning the U.S. Open for a fourth time. So what hard-charging corner of Spain, what hive of cutthroat ambition would produce this kind of ruthless competitor? Actually, it's Mallorca, the largest of Spain's Balearic Islands. A patchwork of turquoise coves, mountain ranges, rolling meadows, Mallorca floats comfortably in the Mediterranean. Think of it as something akin to a tennis ball Spain volleyed in the direction of Italy. The usual historical suspects, Carthaginians, Romans, and Moors, all left their mark here. How many generations of Nadals have been on this island? Mm. Bastantes. Many. No pocas. Quite a few. What is it like to you coming back to Mallorca after spending time
7: on the road? For me, coming back to Mallorca means coming back to a normal life. And normal life makes me happy.
6: I'm
7: not just Rafa Nadal, the tennis player. I become Rafa Nadal, the human being again. Nadal
5: is so attached to the place that when floods ravaged Mallorca in 2018, he put down his racket, grabbed a broom, and became just another volunteer. The island raised him. So, too, did his parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts Three generations of Nadals living together, quite literally on top of each other, in this apartment block in the small town of Manacor. His uncle, Miguel Angel, played professional soccer and gave Rafa his first glimpse
7: of
6: life under
7: stadium lights. He always managed to have a peaceful, normal life, close to his family. And for me, that was a very good example.
5: But it was another uncle, Tony Nadal, then a local tennis instructor, who recognized Rafa's talent.
3: Normally, when you throw the ball to most kids, they wait for the ball to come to them. But when he was three
5: years old, he went straight for it. There were no perks to being the instructor's nephew. Quite the opposite. Tony singled him out, making him pick up balls and sweep the court after practice. How hard were you on him?
8: It was hard.
5: You were.
10: I wanted to prepare my nephew for the future, and I thought the future
4: will
5: be very difficult. You say you were tough. Were you too tough? Sometimes. Still, it was out of the question that Rafa would leave home and his uncle's coaching to attend an academy. <laughs> to this day, the Nadal family operates as a tightly knit clan. They attend Rafa's big matches together. They toast his successes together. And they had cause to celebrate right from the start. Nadal was an instant phenom. In 2005, the week he turned 19, he won his first French Open. His stubborn refusal to surrender and the spin he can generate with a flick of the wrist have always made him near unbeatable on clay courts. And yet the signature moment of Nadal's entire career came on grass. Wimbledon. In 2007, Nadal was close to dethroning the sports reigning king, Roger Federer, to win the tournament for the first time. But then, in keeping with an unfortunate theme of Nadal's career, his body betrayed him, a knee injury this time. Do you remember how low you were after that 2007 Wimbledon final? I was sad
7: and I was angry with myself because I wasn't able to endure... Mentally, the pain, the suffering, and the tension.
5: Nadal got another shot the following year in what's been called the greatest match ever played. Ah, he pulled ahead early, but Federer stormed back. Ah, During a rain delay, Rafa conferred with his uncle.
3: I'm telling you, at that point, I thought Rafael was more likely to lose than to win.
13: And
3: then he looked up at me and said, relax, I'm not gonna lose this match. Maybe Federal will win, but I'm not gonna
8: lose.
7: Winning Wimbledon was a dream. And beating Roger and the way I won.
6: It's something I will never forget.
7: Nadal didn't just overcome Federer. He
5: confronted another persistent nemesis, the doubt in his head. You once said to me, if I don't feel doubt, I'm going to be in trouble. Doubt is very important to my success.
7: Well, what do you mean by that? If you don't have doubts, it probably means that you're being arrogant. Most athletes might think the exact opposite, that, that doubts are bad. You're, you're saying doubts are almost a, a power, a strength. I think so, yes. I think it's good for me, because then I feel alert. Because tennis is a sport where things can change very quickly. That's the great beauty of our sport. A great beauty of Nadal, for all
5: his focus and aggression, he's also unfailingly sporting, which sometimes distinguishes him from colleagues. You haven't broken too many rackets in competition, have you? How many? Do you know the total? Yes, See. What is
7: it? Zero. Zero. (laughs) Never broken a racket. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. What is that about? My family, they wouldn't have allowed me to break a racket. For me, breaking a racket means I'm not in control of my emotions.
5: In full control of his emotions, at least until the last point, he's amassed 20 majors, tying him with Federer for most of all time for a male player. But in this unrivaled sports rivalry... Nadal leads the head to head matchups 24 to 16. Ever done a long interview and not been asked about Roger Federer? Does that bother you? No, Encantado. I'd be delighted. A, a
7: rival, a colleague, a friend, what, what is your relationship? I think it's a little bit of everything.
6: <laughs>
7: We've had a very intense rivalry throughout our
6: careers, but it's been a very healthy rivalry. An elegant, respectful rivalry. We've
7: also reached a stage in our lives where we are able to appreciate that it's not just about winning.
5: Nadal did admit to being jealous of Federer in one respect. Do you ever envy the, the health of your rivals?
7: Yes, <laughs> uh, sometimes I do. It's true that my rivals have faced fewer injuries than I've had to face. One of the theories with your injuries is that you practice
5: and play with so much intensity that it, it takes a physical price. Is, is that something you
7: agree with? No, or I don't know. I was told that for many years. I was told that because of the way I play, I would never have a very long career. But hey, I'm still here. For this,
5: the final set of Nadal's career, Uncle Tony has stepped aside, and Rafa has a new voice in his ear. Carlos Moya is, naturally, a fellow Mallorcan. What percent of his intensity did you have when you were a player? 10%. 10% 10% is intense as Rafa Nadal. And yet you come from the same place. Yeah, he's a different one, not me. Uh, here in Mallorca, we are he, like he's this. He's the exception. Yeah, he's the exception. Yeah. Nadal turned his sleepy hometown of Monacor into a worldwide tennis destination. The Rafa Nadal Academy is a sprawling complex for enthusiasts and aspiring pros. When we asked Nadal if he ever considered moving his operation, as if to emphasize the point, he switched
6: to English to answer. Honestly, not. A lot of people does. Uh, because of taxes. Not or, for you. For me, it was difficult to take that decision because I have all the people that I love here, and I will win much more money if I move to another place. But moving to another place, if I'm not happy, should could be very, very expensive.
5: <laughs> that October, Nadal married his longtime girlfriend, Maria Francisca Pereo. Oh, yep, she's Mallorcan, too. She helps run Nadal's charitable foundation and tends to avoid the public eye. Though we found them together one night, hosting a group of donors.
3: How did you ask her to marry you? <laughs>
13: After 15 years, we don't need to talk room. much.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Just what well, we have to do.
13: <laughs> yes or not.
9: <laughs> well, here we
6: are.
5: <laughs> Nadal took us to a plot of land where he and his wife planned to break ground on a new family home. He told us he'd planned to have kids by now too. Then again, he also thought he'd be off the tour by now.
6: This is the port of Manacor. My parents living there. Oh, your, pa- your parents live across the bay. Yeah, other side. And yeah, it's good because I I have the boat too, very close. Only one problem with this spot. The problem here is the the kids during the summer. They go there, they jump. Oh, <laughs> because there, because there is nobody in the house. They come up and they come back. You know, they, they come from inside oh, the property. So this is
5: a hangout for Mallorca, because yeah. Rafa's away playing tennis, so why don't we go out to his property and
6: jump <laughs> off his cliff? Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Have you, have you jumped off that? Yeah.
5: Well, yeah. A
6: couple of times, yes.
5: Maybe it was the down. effects of being back home. Maybe it's because he was back on top. But we found Rafael Nadal ready to take the measure of his entire surpassing career. You've had some incredible victories and you've had some gutting losses. What is more intense, the joy of winning or the pain of
6: losing? Depends on the moment.
7: Unfortunately, in life, more often we remember the negative things because they have a greater impact on us. In tennis, it's a little different now.
6: I think over my career that I have
7: been happier with my victories than I have been upset with my defeats. I think.
3: Next Sunday on 60 Minutes, we venture to Iceland, where volcanologists hope the world's newest volcano may help them learn how to predict future eruptions, the Earth reveals some of its deepest secrets as incandescent chunks of molten rock and a fountain of lava shoot 20 stories into the air. It's incredible. You can feel the heat. It's over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition
0: of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus
8: It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.
1: A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.